0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the March 23rd edition of Warcom Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, an attorney with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. Recent panel decisions have carved out exceptions to the UR and IMR process established by SB 863 to resolve medical disputes. Both administrative procedures seem to be suffering from a death by a thousand cuts. The most significant exception was initiated in the On banc case of Dubon v. World Restoration, Incorporated. The appeals board held in Dubon that following an untimely U.R., any determination of medical necessities to be made by the WCAB as to, and is to be based on substantial medical evidence consistent with Labor Code Section 4604.5. The WCAB confirmed in Dubon that the mechanics of what is required to show substantial evidence supporting a request for medical care. It quoted from the Sandhagen case and said that notwithstanding whatever an employer does, an injured employee must still prove that the treatment sought is medically reasonable and necessary. That means demonstrating that the treatment. Request is consistent with the uniform guidelines or, alternatively, rebutting the application of the guidelines. Unfortunately, the requirement for a showing that a request for treatment meets some type of a uniform guideline was ignored in the recent panel decision of Jared Carness versus AutoZone. In an expedited hearing, the parties stipulated that the UR was not timely. The work comp judge therefore obtained jurisdiction over whether or not to award the treatment requested by the PTP Dr. Eichbaum. And the judge then ruled that applicant had presented substantial evidence of need for medical treatment consisting of a new bed that cost more than $5,000. The WCAB denied reconsideration in the split panel decision without any explanation. Dr. Eich Baum made a request for a new bed because applicant was scheduled for a major lumbar surgical procedure. He had difficulty with sleeping and his bed was over 15 years old with a very poor mattress. In order to optimize his recovery, the doctor said he would need an appropriate bed to sleep on after the surgery. But what was missing from the record or medical reports was any reference to any uniform treatment guideline by the treating physician in his reporting, a critical requirement for awarding medical care. The decision is therefore a step back from the limits specified in DuPont and Sanhagen cases. The digression from existing law that requires evidence from a uniform guideline did not go unnoticed by the dissenting opinion in this case. Commissioner Zuluski pointed out that none of the evidence in the case met the standards and thus the findings was not supported by substantial evidence. However, the majority of commissioners consisting of Frank Bross and Marguerite Sweeney seem to believe that the standard was met without explanation or pointing to any evidence. The mandates of Sanhagen and Dubon have thus been eroded without explanation by the majority, leaving the UR and IMR process once again in the path of death by a thousand small cuts. And now our fraud report. Medical fraud is now setting new all-time high records already in 2015. Last year, the federal government recovered nearly $5.7 billion in fraud cases, up $1.9 billion from the prior year. But already 2015 has seen a host of major fraud news involving dozens of individuals and amounts to millions of dollars in abuse often related to Medicare fraud. Here are some examples just this year. Here's a $100 million case, 37 People, including 24 doctors, pleaded guilty to a massive health care bribery scheme resulting in more than $100 million in payments from Medicare and various private insurance companies to biodiagnostic laboratory services in New Jersey. Another $75 million case, Community Health Systems and three of its hospitals in New Mexico in February agreed to pay a $75 million settlement to the federal government, over a whistleblower suit that claimed it illegally donated money to New Mexico counties in return for higher Medicaid payments to cover the costs of indigent care. A $30 million case, operators of a Louisiana home care company, Priority Care at Home, as well as 20 other accomplices were indicted in March for their alleged role in a $30 million Medicare fraud scheme. The defendants allegedly hired house doctors to sign orders and plans of care for Medicare beneficiaries who had no legitimate medical necessity for home health services. In a $14 million case, Jonathan Wade Dunnings, the former CEO of two nonprofit health clinics in Alabama, was arrested in February on 112 counts related to alleged conspiracy, fraud, and money laundering of cash meant for the poor and homeless. In a $7.9 million case, pharmaceutical giant AstraZeneca in February agreed to pay the government $7.9 million to settle allegations that it engaged in kickback schemes regarding its drug Nexium. The complaint said AstraZeneca paid Medco Health Solutions, a pharmacy benefit manager, in exchange for Medco maintaining Nexium's sole and exclusive status on certain Medco formularies and through other marketing activities. In another $6.9 million case, Olivas Oliveira, a 49-year-old owner of Acclaim Home Health Care in Miami, in February admitted to running a $6.9 million Medicare fraud in which he and his conspirators billed the government for expensive therapies patients did not need. In another $3.5 million case, the New York-based Catholic Health Care System, an operator of skilled nursing facilities, agreed in March to pay $3.5 million to settle allegations that it inflated Medicare claims for rehabilitation therapy. In a $1.6 million case, 44-year-old Vivian Youssef, the former owner of the Houston-area Ivy Healthcare supply company in February, was sentenced to seven years in federal prison in order to pay restitution on a conviction of conspiracy to commit healthcare care fraud. And thus, the first quarter of 2015 is not yet over. Primera Blue Cross announced it was the victim of a cyber attack that may have exposed the personal data of 11 million customers. The company has not yet determined if data was removed from their systems. The information may have included names, street addresses, email addresses, telephone numbers, dates of birth, social security numbers, member identification numbers, and medical claims information, including bank account information. The company said it does not store credit card information. Experts say this is potentially one of the largest breaches that have ever been reported involving health care information. The company is offering two years of free credit monitoring and identity theft protection services to those affected by this incident. The FBI is also investigating the cyber intrusion and is working with the company in order to determine the nature and scope of this incident. The premier hack comes just two months after Anthem, the second largest insurer in the country, announced a cyber attack resulting in the data breach affecting tens of millions of its customers. Healthcare companies have become attractive to hackers because of the premium paid on the black market for insurance credentials. A complete health insurance credential costs 10 to 20 times more money than a credit card number with security code on underground black markets. The information can be used for identity theft, but also medical fraud, such as purchasing expensive medical equipment or obtaining pricey medical care. Workers' compensation insurers also store personal medical information on claimants, and it is more likely than not that industry computers are somewhere on the hacker's radar. A Los Angeles pharmacist has been convicted of kicking back cash to his patients. 34-year-old Ruzbe Jarvarian of Beverly Grove, California, pleaded guilty to health care fraud through a pharmacy called a MUNA Incorporated doing business as West Aid Pharmacy and Medical Supply. Javaharian was a licensed pharmacist and owner of WestAid, which was located in Los Angeles. Javaharian paid illegal cash kickbacks to Medicare beneficiaries to induce them to submit their prescriptions to his pharmacy. He then filled some of those prescriptions but also submitted false and fraudulent claims to Medicare Part D plan sponsors for prescriptions that he did not actually fill. He received over $600,000 in overpayments from Medicare as a result of the fraud scheme. Sentencing for him is scheduled for June 1st. But, unfortunately, the California Board of Pharmacy still reports that he is licensed as a pharmacist in California with no apparent restrictions on his license. This case was investigated by the FBI and was brought as part of the Medicare Fraud Strike Force supervised by the Criminal Division's Fraud Section and the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Central District of California. And in regulatory news, early this month, ProPublica and NPR published an article about the demolition of workers' compensation. They asserted that over the past decade, states have slashed workers' compensation benefits and shifted the cost of workplace accidents to taxpayers. This story has triggered a heated response from the workers' compensation community. The president of the Insurance Information Institute responded by saying It was necessary that the record be set straight using verifiable, uncontrovertible facts rather than just the unsubstantiated assertions, incorrect interpretations, and subsequent erroneous conclusions conclusions by the authors of the article. He goes on to say the very title is Hyperbole of the Highest Order. He also said that workers' compensation insurers today provide some $40 $40 billion in benefits annually to hundreds of thousands of injured workers. And the workplace has become much safer, in no small part due to the relentless loss control efforts of insurers and employers in partnership with state and federal government. The incidence rate of fa- uh, fatal occupational injuries plunged by 36% over the past two decades and by 90% over the past century. A system as large as workers' compensation, he said, is in constant need of monitoring and fine-tuning. Many of the changes made by various states simply mirror changes in the health care system overall nationwide. Benefits can and do vary from state to state, but in no state are workers left without the important safety net that workers' compensation provides. ProPublica and NPR published his letter in its entirety, but then published its rebuttal. They did not dispute that the workplace has become safer, but they said changes in the work comp laws have affected people who are injured in the job. The decline in fatalities and injuries has multiple causes, they say, including the creation of the OSHA, improvements in auto safety and health research, and the growth in automation and a changing economy which has reduced jobs in dangerous manufacturing and mining industries and expanded them in the safer service and office sectors. The finding that workers' comp rates have fallen was substantiated by multiple data sources, they say. Following two public hearings, the Department of Industrial Relations had made revisions to the proposed regulations to implement the Return to Work Supplement Program. Members of the public are invited to present written comments regarding the proposed new modifications. According to the Northern California public hearing heard a few weeks ago, Bert Arnold, who is president-elect of the California Applicants' Attorneys Association, was concerned that the notice to injured workers is on the sixth page of the voucher notice and would not likely be read and understood by the injured worker. He suggested that the notice be moved to page one or to a cover letter. He was also concerned that there was nothing in the regulations to have the notices written in Spanish. And according to the transcript of the Southern California Public Hearings, Robert McLaughlin, an attorney representing applicants in San Diego and also a member of the California Applicants Attorney Association, was concerned that there would be approximately three years of back payments by the time applicants started getting paid. Christelle Schoenfelder, also an applicant's attorney and comm member, said The statute of limitations starts to run on these claims one year after the regulations take effect and she was concerned that these claimants will never be notified since some of their cases are now settled and closed. As a result of these comments, these new proposed regulations now require a cover sheet to be prepared by the claims administrator that summarizes the return to work supplement claims process. Now, the new notice, revised initial statement of reasons, and modified text of the proposed new regulations can be found on the DIR website for comment. And now our medical report, New Research, suggests that older people with a new episode of back pain should not be sent for x-rays or other imaging studies right away. The researchers from the University of Washington in Seattle say They will not be any better off and they will just end up with bigger bills. Treatment guidelines suggest that young people with new back pain should wait before getting x-rays, MRIs, or CT scans. But the same guidelines make exceptions for older people since there could be more serious underlying conditions. But based on this new study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, people of every age should not routinely get early imaging studies. The researchers looked at data from more than 5,000 patients aged 65 and older who visited their primary care doctor complaining of new back pain. Within six weeks of the first visit, over 1,500 of these patients had X-rays, MRIs, or CT scans of their backs after one year there was no difference in the disability related to back or leg pain between those who did or did not have early imaging studies. Those who had the x-rays, MRIs or CT scans ended up with medical bills averaging $1,300 higher than for those who did not have early imaging studies. Imaging accounts for most of the $35 billion spent in medical care for lower back pain each year in the United States. Most of the time, back pain develops from stress and strain on muscles or joints. A thorough physical exam and medical history should help doctors distinguish between more benign forms of back strain or a more serious cause. Now the question is, will the iPad tablet use be the next trend in CT neck neck claims? Last year in the United States, 42% of under 18-year-olds owned one and more than half of the 35- to 49-year-olds used these tablets regularly. This figure seems unlikely to decrease and yet only limited guidance is available on minimizing health risks. Tablet use requires significant head and neck flexion and has implications for potential neck injury to users. And now researchers from Washington State University evaluated the head-neck biomechanics during tablet use and published their findings. Increased activation of neck extensor muscles leave users vulnerable to fatigue and therefore pain. It is not clear, though, if more risk is associated with the type of computer activity or if differences in head mass, head and or neck muscle strength are often associated with gender, are pivotal. In the new study, users were tested in a variety of usage positions and while reading and typing. The authors hypothesized that tablet use would result in greater gravitational demand than a neutral posture, particularly when used on a lap or flat on a desk. They also speculate that demand will be different for reading versus typing and finally that gravitational demand will be greater for female users. The authors discovered that tablet use increases mechanical demand on neck muscles by three to five times more than a neutral position. Using a tablet flat or on a lap also had this effect as compared to being propped up. But whether the subject was reading or typing had little effect on the level of neck strain, head or neck demand is independent of the hand position. Thus, the authors urge more research to include further variables such as extent and frequency of use and posture, all of which could be significant in inducing neck pain after use of a tablet. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Skern, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.